My name is Mason Canrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. To start with for this episode, we will delve into the tricky style of business of Hinaria, Captain Vasker's home country, and a place that has had an eventful history the past few decades. Before the zombies, it was Hinaria and the spread of their revolutionary infection that plagued the minds of world leaders. An angry populace rose up and cast down their oppressors, and many of those watching cheered. Then they killed their oppressors, and some still cheered. And then, well, the seemingly never-ending orgy of violence seemed to lose all purpose. Nobody cheered then. When a stable state emerged from the destruction that was almost as terrifying at times, they were surprisingly effective. Coalition armies struggled for decades with little to show for their exertion. Seeing the world turned against them, the Hanarians actively exported their revolution and, again, were surprisingly effective. At the time of the original infection, an uneasy stalemate existed with both sides officially at peace, but each side seizing all opportunities for a quieter war. Such was the distrust of Hanaria, they were banned from joining the coalition put together against the undead. The Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 17th, 1886 People look at me differently when they learn where I'm from. It's something I've been dealing with for years since not long after I joined the Legion. Most people express shock, even disgust. More than one person has spat on the floor in front of me. Curses have been yelled at me, and superstitious symbols gestured in my direction. All because I'm Hanerian. The fact that I left my country before the uprising and long before the erasure means nothing. Most of my fellow legionnaires don't care. Or at least act like they don't. All are welcomed in the Legion, even when the Coalition refused help from the Hanerian government. Of course, my actions on 23rd June only confirmed my treachery to some. Whatever else anyone thinks, my sole loyalty is to the Legion, and it is my desire to fight in the Legion until my death, or we are finally victorious. Some people served in the Legion for several years and then go home, which is perfectly right, and I respect their sacrifice, but... There is no other life for me. There are other legionnaires like me. Those who will stay in the legion as long as there is an enemy to fight. But for many, that's not much of a life. The legion is not as politically or nationally neutral as it claims to be. I know that there is a betting syndicate on the outcome of the Congress of Corbin, and many patriots have placed their money along national lines. There has never been an official census of the Legion, and there are members from all over the world. There are Dossi and Vince, people thousands of miles from their homeland, but most are from the west of Corbin. Barists, Dravens, Iridians, Covians, Starls, and more. This is largely because, for these countries, the peril of the infected is not direct. A sea stands between them and danger, and while they still appreciate the seriousness of the situation, it might not be their highest priority. Those on the same continent, those to the east and south, 
didn't need an idealistic internationalist organization to fight the undead. They were on their doorstep. I've never done anything for Hineria since joining the Legion, but that's not what people think. That said, what happened in Hineria, not all of it was bad. They did some things that had to be done, and change was never going to come under the Saffrons. They were either incompetent, cruel, or crazy. The best you could ask was that they were too busy hunting and fucking and they left someone who knew what they were doing in charge. I left Heneria because I couldn't stand to live like that. Joining the Legion made more sense. If I stayed in Heneria, I would have joined the Uprising, undoubtedly. It would have been a very different life. And I'm glad I left when I did. I'm writing all this because I still have friends in Heneria. And I know that despite the threat of execution where they found, there are Hanerians in Korriban. I'm sure they have a million and one projects in the city, trying to do whatever they can to advance the cause of international revolution and their own twisted version of justice, but they are also studying the infected. They don't ask any favors, and I don't ask any questions, but occasionally they will pass me some useful information about the infected. Some revelation from their research that could help the Legion. Presumably they have some other sources in the Legion who will get them whatever they need in the way of samples. Either they help them across the border themselves, or the Legionnaires get it for them. Well, they knew I was in Corbin and asked to see me. I wanted to refuse, or just ignore it. I felt like they must have some request that I wouldn't grant. But it wasn't like that at all. I went to them, visiting one of their bases in the city. I knew of several, but they would have more. Despite them abandoning this house, I won't risk putting any identifying information in this diary. That would be a stupid mistake. The house was surprisingly busy, and it seemed like they were in the process of packing up and leaving. A number of people, unknown to me, were loading things into boxes while a young man shoveled papers into a fireplace, carefully poking the burning papers to make sure they were completely destroyed. My contact was a man known to me as Professor Dressed, and while his name was undoubtedly fake, I doubted his title was. The man really wasn't suited for a life on the front line of revolution, but he wasn't there to write pamphlets or train insurgents. He was a scientist. While there are many things a scientist could be studying in this part of the world, Professor Dressed was here to study the infected. This is, unsurprisingly, highly illegal. No one can enter the infected areas, and no one can bring the infected back to study. Many scientists have argued that the only way to work out what caused the plague is through scientific study, and they are ignored or occasionally arrested. After some particularly brave scientists volunteered for the Legion for the express purpose of getting experience with the undead, any and all scientific research on the infected was banned. The worry was always that all that came from research would be more infected, that no safety measure was enough. The world saw the problem as contained, and many thought that a cure already existed. Bullets. Aneria did not really consider itself bound by these rules. 
There were rational men and women who believed in progress, and would not simply be put off by the risks or frightened by the laws of tyrants. Hanaria had many projects going on in Korriban, and one of them was scientific research on the undead. Dress was sorting through a stack of papers, sometimes pulling one out and placing it safely in a box, while pushing the rest towards the fire. We're leaving, said Drest, without looking up. I can tell, I said, hoping there was more to this than simply changing address. No, said Drest. We're leaving the city. All of us. Not just this building. This was interesting. After all, Corbin was considered by most to be the greatest city in the world, wanted by all, even revolutionaries. While Heneria was not permitted to take part in the Congress, or, well, any international event, I expected they would be present in some form. There was the constant, underlying fear of all involved that they used this opportunity of some many tyrants to carry out some devastating act of terrorism. Heneria had an odd relationship with its reputation as international evildoer. They were a convenient scapegoat for any murder or nefarious activity, and certainly most of the crimes ascribed to them they had no part in. Other powerful countries were desperate for a pretext to form another coalition to destroy them. If they really had assassinated a prime minister or poisoned a duke, I am sure something would be done. At the same time, they had slaughtered thousands of their own people, including their entire royal family and most of the aristocracy, and had only managed to defend themselves in the last war by unparalleled acts of violence. If they were holding back on a campaign of terror, it wasn't due to their morals. I thought you'd want to be here for the Congress, I said bluntly. Oh, we would, said Drest. But something is in the works. Something is going to happen in the city, and we don't want any part of it. Drest looked actually concerned. This was new. He often seemed the perfect stereotype of the emotionless, ruthless scientist, unfazed by the gruesomeness of his work. What is it? I asked. We don't know, said Drest. I started to argue, demanding to know why he had called me here only to deny me answers, but he cut me off. This isn't politics. I promise you, if I knew, I'd tell you. He ran his hands through what remained of his hair. We deal with a lot of people who are outside the law, and not just rebels, all sorts of criminals, you know, and talk is, there's a new smuggling ring that are connected to something bad. Really bad. I knew the sort of people Drest was talking about, and normally a crisis or disaster didn't phase them. It was just an opportunity to make money or wreak more havoc. So you're saying I should leave the city? I asked. Not just the city, said Drest. The region. But I know you won't do it. So go back to that fortress of yours and tell them to get ready. Something bad is coming, and it is coming soon. I had to ask. Is it the infected? Drest looked sadly at me. I hope not. I left Professor Drest sorting through his papers and tried not to look at the vast cache of weapons, 
neatly stacked blocks of cash and other illegal or suspicious items that were being loaded into boxes. I took a second glance at a collection of sturdy-looking wooden boxes, just over six feet long and several feet wide, that familiar, unpleasant smell coming from them. My hand reached out towards them, but then I thought better of it and left the building. As I walked back to where I was staying, I thought about dress warning. Obviously, I wasn't going to be chased out of the city by vague warnings, but I would write to the Legion and pass on the idea that maybe they do what they can to fortify their position. I woke up in a panic, which got instantly worse. My head hurt so much it was difficult to focus, but I soon realized I was restrained, and I did not respond well to this news. I threw myself about as best I could, muscles straining against what was holding me. A bag of some description had been put over my head, and I shook my head desperately trying to get it off. All of my attempts were futile, and I thought I could hear someone in the room laughing quietly. After several minutes of exhausting struggling, I finally stopped and tried to think. I was tied to a chair, rather securely, and fighting against it was not going to get me free. There was at least one other person in the room who found my struggling amusing, and presumably they were my captor. I could hear someone approaching, and tensed, and then a familiar voice, very close to me, spoke. So you've come down now, and the bag was removed from my head. I was not surprised to see that my captor was Jorn Auric, the possibly insane leader of the Brotherhood, whose clutches I had recently escaped from. I looked around the room I found myself in, dark and grim, with no windows, and a very secure-looking door. The room was filled with unusual and unfamiliar devices, as well as a table on which sat what looked like a combination of dental, butchery, and masonry tools. This was undoubtedly the legendary torture chamber of the Brotherhood. Although admittedly its design seemed to be stuck several centuries in the past, the torture chambers of Haneria were said to be cutting-edge facilities. I mentioned this to Auric, and it resulted in a punch to my face. Auric explained how the Brotherhood are indeed the best torturers in the world, honing centuries of experience of how to inflict pain and terror on their captives. And of course he was delighted that I would get to experience this firsthand. Auric also explained that they had no questions for me, nor was there anything they wanted me to do, or to give them. This torture had no purpose. There was nothing I could do to make it stop. It would stop when they were done with me. Auric said that sometimes they kept people alive for months. There were a couple of cases where it had lasted years. Unfortunately, they did not have the time for that right now. Auric also apologized that at times he would have to hand off the work to subordinates. I spent some time talking. I went through angry defiance, pleading, insults. None of it made much sense. Auric stood silently through it all. I'm sure he'd heard it all before, and it had never moved him. Again, I eventually tired myself out and regained some control over what I was doing. I tried to think of courage and honor. I was a proud Cassarian, a representative of my country, and I resolved to show no fear. But I knew I wasn't strong enough. Eventually, Auric stepped over to the table, and his hands ran over the various implements. I tried to control my breathing to disguise how terrified I was, but I don't think it worked. Auric had finally settled on a torture weapon, a long, thin blade, perhaps a scalpel of some kind, and walked towards me. 
Naturally, I tried to pull away, but Auric grabbed my head with a strong hand, and the blade moved slowly towards my face. Then the door opened. Auric paused, the blade inches from my face, and asked to know what the disturbance was about. My torturer retreated to talk to the newcomer. I strained against the ropes holding me, summoning what remained of my strength, but it was useless. Within seconds, Auric was back, but he did not look happy. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Orente. This has been a case of mistaken identity, he said through gritted teeth. I couldn't tell if this was genuine or some ploy to make the torture worse, but I didn't think he was that good of an actor to be pretending. He still clutched the blade tightly in his hand, and he looked ready to use it. A few seconds passed, and Auric returned the blade to the table, and then turned back to me. Well, we best get you out of here, Mr. Orente. Something hit me, and I was out. The Sacred Brotherhood History of Torture by Saprachana The Sacred Brotherhood of the Champions of God have a long and very bloody history. Originally founded by King Asturias in 962 to recruit the best talent for his campaign into Jerissa, Asturias had suffered a crushing defeat and needed to replenish his ranks quickly and hit upon the idea of calling this war a battle of faith. He was able to recruit foreign soldiers who could retain their loyalty to their masters and fight solely against non-believers. Asturias recruited several hundred highly trained knights and turned his campaign around. When he made peace with the unbelievers, the Brotherhood was appalled and vowed to continue the fight without King Asturias. The fortunes of the Brotherhood have waxed and waned over the centuries. On several occasions they have made themselves the masters of small kingdoms. Sometimes they have been the most prestigious and effective fighting force in the whole world. But they have had their dark moments. Times when membership fell to less than a hundred. When they suffered terrible defeats like the Battle of Vanabe or their disastrous charge on the infected. Surely one of the more shameful points in their history is when they moved from primarily being a military force, fighting opponents on the battlefield, to becoming the premier torturers of their day. Their presence as torturers was not used against foreign enemies, but normally fellow believers who didn't quite believe the right things. They took to touring kingdoms and countries whose rulers gave them permission and the presence of the Brotherhood in a community became terrifying. Their methods were extreme, and a single accusation was enough to garner their interest. In their time, they tortured and killed heretics, witches, demons, non-believers of every stripe, traitors, communists, atheists, and more, or at least people who were accused of being such things. According to the Brotherhood, of the hundreds, if not thousands, of people they investigated, they acknowledge only eleven instances of excessive torture and only four of persecuting an innocent person. Thankfully, the advancement of society pushed the Brotherhood to the fringes of the continent, their power and prestige ever diminishing. When they tried to secretly operate in revolutionary Haneria, they were easily caught, put on trial, and executed. They were explicitly told not to enter any barist territory or protectorate around the world after they expressed an interest in more far-flung destinations. When the infection broke out, 
and call for international aid was issued, the Brotherhood answered. Ignoring all sensible advice and leaving behind all other forces, they journeyed into the infected territory, hoping to have the glory of destroying the infection for themselves. The disastrous charge of the Holy Warriors almost led to the absolute destruction of the Order. They took appalling casualties and lost most of their leaders. Not only that, they were utterly humiliated in the eyes of the world. Already considered by most an embarrassing relic of more brutal times, they were shown up as completely incompetent. Their latest patron, Emperor Varance, who had already financed their campaign against the undead, took pity on them and offered them a new role. By this point, the city of Korriban had already been carved up. Occupying powers and the Brotherhood would work for the Emperor, dealing with traitors, rebels, and other undesirables. They had no official place in the government or administration of the Draven Section, but this simply allowed them greater freedom with no scrutiny. The Emperor even gave them a small island as a base for their operations, Turgard Castle, a small, ugly building that became dreaded amongst the population as a place people never returned from. In fact, many people used the word Turgard as a synonym for whatever unpleasant version of the afterlife people believed in. What is safe to say is that, increasingly, there is no place in the world for the Brotherhood, and soon they will cease to exist, their remaining members drifting off into new forms of violence. I haven't spoken about Yarn Orek, the last leader the Brotherhood ever had, mainly because I find him an extremely unpleasant and unimpressive figure. Much has been said in praise of him and the Brotherhood since the ignition, and people talk about how, when the situation demanded it, they rose to the occasion and fought for what was right. Even without Orente, I never really believed it. Whatever part the Brotherhood played in the ignition, whether they tried to save people or not, they were bad men who inflicted cruelty and death, and the manner in which they died cannot forgive the manner in which they lived. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minx. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minx. Sapachana was played by Mark E. Mordelis. Find Mark on Twitter at Mark E. Voice.